Welcome to the February 2021 edition of RehabCast, the official podcast brought to you by the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and hosted by yours truly, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. In this episode, we're going to be visiting with Sam Kalachis of the Ohio-based technology innovation company Battelle. Sam is winner of the 2020 Launchpad competition at the ACRM Annual Conference. We will hear about Sam's winning submission and some of his other work in the neurotech field. Also in this edition of the RehabCast, we're talking with Lance Trexler about his special communication in the journal, published in the November 2020 issue. It looks closely at the use of opioids post-TBI. The position paper makes a number of practical recommendations for the judicious use of this highly risky class of medications in the vulnerable TBI population. Let's get started. Okay, and joining us now on the rehab cast is Sam Kalachis. Sam uh, has the winning submission for the 2020 ACRM Conference's Launchpad competition, namely an interactive activities of daily living assistance device. Sam is a research scientist at Battelle. If you've listened to this podcast in the past, I think you have heard about Battelle before with some of its other uh, neurorehabilitation-related research. It's an Ohio-based technology company with uh, a lot of tendrils in, in different areas of medicine and industry, and uh, we'll certainly hear a bit more about, about that in this interview as well. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Hey, doing very well. As we were just uh, chatting, I've got to share with the audience this fascinating history that your family has with uh, the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, so your grandfather, Sam Kalachis, was a president of ACRM back in the 1980s and uh, was a rehabilitation physician. And your father is a physiatrist as well and in charge of the spinal cord injury program over at OSU. Uh, And here you've stayed related in the field as well, uh, doing uh, neuroengineering, Uh, quite uh, a family dynasty (laughs) in rehabilitation. Uh, That is really cool to see. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a small world. I I mean, like I mentioned to you before, you know, I just recently found out that my grandfather was the president. But again, you know, I grew up in a family of, uh, of spinal cord injury physicians and living that rehab, you know, rehab was the conversation at the dinner table. My mom was also a, a rehabilitation nurse, worked with, um, right? Oh, yeah, really? worked okay. with spinal cord injury patients, stroke patients, uh, individuals with traumatic brain injuries. So, uh, I kind of grew up, you know, again, talking about that with them often and thought about being a physician myself, but found that I really loved the engineering side of it and decided that, you know, my path made more sense to develop technologies that could help these individuals. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating field in terms of its potential interface with uh, biotechnology and neuroengineering. I mean, with the, you know, physical accoutrements, uh, as it were, of robotics and everything and uh, computers and so forth. And um, so a huge opportunity for that. And the fact that you're so enmeshed, you have family-wise and everything from childhood and, and the medicine side of it, seems like a perfect combination to me uh, uh, probably has has something to do with uh, looking like you're, you're having a successful career in it thus far. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it definitely it helps to at least have the background with the, the clinical side of things because you get into you get so deep into the engineering sometimes that you often forget about the, the end user. Mm-hmm. Right. And you really you really need to build in those user needs into anything that you're developing. So, you know, it helps to have those connections with 
um, people I've met over the years that know my my father and and you know we've actually I'll get into it a little bit more but for this specific project um, you know he put me in contact with one of the the, the TBI director over at, at Dodd and she's been working closely with me Dr. Bavishi and she's helping to recruit patients or eventually will to help actually test the system Very cool. so uh, well that, that's great to hear yeah my um, uh, you know, one one complaint about the technology side of things that I see with various startups and so forth is sometimes folks let the, the fact that you can do something or the technical ability to invent X, Y, or Z, then search out the potential need for it. So you develop the, the widget first, and then you kind of find uh, where that widget is going to plug in or create the customer base for that. But I find it uh, Somewhat, somewhat frustrating when it comes to practical problems in my own field of medicine. More of it should be derived from kind of looking at uh, the the actual consumer first, and then what widget they need. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Going after those unmet needs. Yep. Preaching to the choir. There sounds like. Yeah, I'm still guilty of it myself because you know I do <laughs> I do innovate and I want to push, but you know it, the the products that are always the most successful are those that are are pulled pulled from the market, right, or by the market. So, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the coolest devices that I that I've seen in uh, recent years was uh, derived from uh, uh, an engineer looking at a friend who had uh, quadriplegia, wanted to be able to control different devices, and came up with a simple uh, uh, Bluetooth uh, uh, device that um, uh, can be controlled by the mouth. And we've actually ended up using that a lot here at, uh, at Shepherd Center with uh, interfacing with different computers and so forth. So. Um, yeah, I, I, starting with the patient, the individual seems to be very important. Now, with regards to this little competition that uh, ACRM has had going now for a few years, the idea is to get uh, you know the diverse membership uh, of ACRM, which includes everyone from engineers to all different types of clinicians and people working together uh, to kind of compete and come up with different ideas for practical tools, recognizing that the rehabilitation space um, has a lot of potential for different types of industry, device collaboration, and so forth. And I think it's uh, generated a lot of interest at the conference in, in recent years. And it looks like year after year is getting a little bit more competitive, which is good to see, and uh, some fancier projects being submitted. And I would certainly wager that that your project is, is uh, one of those. Um, so, uh, with, in the, in the TBI space, you've particularly gone after, uh, uh, occupational therapy, um, and the fact that, um, you know, certainly like all forms of therapy, um, we would like to be able to deliver it potentially more than we can with a one-on-one, certainly looking at the pandemic right now, <laughs> there's an opportunity there to do potentially less of the in-person therapy. Now, uh, uh, so you're looking at, uh, what can be done uh, with the u- utilization of different forms of technology that you're going to describe to us in order to recognize what a patient is doing on a tabletop task, something as simple as perhaps uh, meal preparation, uh, uh, laying out the utensils and plate and uh, uh, cup and everything and uh, putting things in correct order and so forth. But you would need then a system that could in real time look at what the patient is doing and judge uh, how that is against the paradigm of how we would like for them to do it. Um, uh, I assume both motor-wise and technically correct about it looks like on, on the table. That's a fascinating idea. Now, translating that into um, uh, an actual practical uh, system uh, really seems like like a tall order. What uh, of the technologies, and first, uh, you know, feel free to revise uh, as I'm describing, attempting to describe what the system is. Uh, summarize us for it a little bit and then start to elaborate for us what, what are some of the main technological barriers uh, or what is really the, the, the toughest part of uh, creating this system? Yeah, no, I, I mean, you summarized it very nicely. So I do want to start off by saying, and, and, and again, you mentioned it, 
Um, our goal is not to replace an occupational therapist, and it never will be. And, and that's obviously foolish, right? I mean, the the interactions between a therapist and a, and a patient, it, it, I mean, there's so many intricacies and this, the, the goal here is, is not to, to replace that. Right. I mean, the, it, it will never be that good. Right. The computers will never, I mean, maybe 50 years from now, right. Everyone's job will be replaced, but that's not the plan. It's the idea really is like you said, you know, patients only get a certain amount of time with their, with their, you know, a physical therapist, occupational therapist, whatever, due to insurance uh, reimbursement issue or limitations, um, finances, even just like your location where you live, your access to the, to care. Right. So there's a lot, even when you're inpatient, you're, you're only, you're getting a lot of, I mean, depending on where you're at, you're getting a lot of rehab, but you're not, you could always be getting more and more practice. And I actually shadowed a few sessions with occupational therapists and patients early on before we started developing the technology. And it seemed like almost everyone, all, all the patients, their family members are asking, what, what can we do when we go home? Right. What, what can we keep doing? And, and, you know, it is challenging with individuals with cognitive impairment. We, the system requires setup, right? And, you know, it's never going to, again, it's not going to be a standalone. They set it up themselves. It's going to eventually be a, maybe a caregiver sort of helps them, but it, it provides guidance, uh, that little extra bit. And, and also, um, so I'll explain a little bit what the technology is, but again, I just wanted to, to clarify or to, to re reinforce that. Yeah. Right. It's just extra practice what we're going for. And, Really, like you said, it's what we started off with some tabletop um, evaluation. So things like meal preparation, medication management, money management tasks. So, uh, you know, there might be tasks that you can vary in difficulty. So count out this much money, right? Um, things that are those activities or those instrumental activities of daily living. Again, you know, prompting the participant to go through steps and activity. And then we have a camera based system that visualizes all of their interactions. And we use state-of-the-art object recognition or object detection algorithms to identify where in space those objects are, how they're being manipulated and how the user's interacting with them. So if I simply ask someone to, you know, place out a certain amount of money or, um, or in the medication, manage, uh, medication management task to place pills in a certain, um, in a, in a certain bin, right? The system using the object recognition can detect if they've done things correctly or incorrectly and prompt them as a therapist therapist would to say, Hey, you've, you know, you've uh, tried doing it this way and we can vary the amount of involvement, but, you know, try doing it this way, or it should be this way, or, you know, that's great. And give them that positive or negative reinforcement. So object recognition is, is this the uh, mastermind that we're all training with those captures online and those types of things? Uh, is this an algorithm that uh, is AI? I mean, what is this? Right, exactly. It's the machine learning algorithms. It's the same kind of stuff they're using with uh, the automated vehicles, right? So it's the state of the art object detection um, algorithms, right? So we're, we're leveraging those same ones here or similar ones. And, and, and really just applying it in a, in a new space, right? I mean, this, we haven't really seen, at least in the rehab world, this, this being done, obviously, right, with automated vehicles, and even, um, you know, in manufacturing and factories and automating there, they do a lot of object, object detection. So, you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of work that's been done there. So it's kind of leveraging that technology in a new application. And again, getting into the, the, 
um, a whole new space where we can we can use that to really understand an individual's performance with these sort of complex activities, right? And the other the other piece to it as well is, you know, there there's there might be something for prompting someone that they're doing it correctly or incorrectly, but Another thing that we found as we were developing this and talking with with different therapists and clinicians is that there really isn't a great tool that exists right now to quantify somebody's abilities. Really, it's it's more based on on the the clinician's judgment. So they ask you to perform a like make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you, maybe you try that. Maybe they start off with with cards and the ordering. I've seen that where they order pictures and that, but when they actually go to do a real a real task. And they're able to sort of walk them through, okay, you, this is what you need to work on and, and so on, right? But they're not sitting there quantifying all of the, you know, what's your reaction time? How long did it take you to do this? How many mistakes did you make? I mean, they're kind of counting in the back of their head, but that's not their main focus. Their main focus is the being involved and helping with that rehab process. And that's something we actually learned along the way and where we're starting to um kind of shift gears a bit where we, we think there might be a bigger, bigger unmet need actually right, on yeah. the ability to quantify their performance while they're working with the therapist and then be able to get like spit out a chart of, you know, here's, here's how you did in these categories, right? You're really good at sequencing tasks, but you're not so good at these types of tasks. You know, what, right? this could be kind of, yeah, kind of the more standardized measure that exactly. you might do once, once a week or a couple of times a week to document the fact that overall it's improving. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And it would be objective, right? I mean, when you work with individuals, you have by design, a subjective uh, quantification. So one person might do an assessment versus another, and then you're going to get, you potentially could fit a patient within different categories because, because of it. Right. So using the computer to objectively assess alongside a therapist where they are in, in one embodiment, right. Where, where they're still helping with the rehab aspect. But then the other element too, is, you know, you could take this home and, and it could help also guide your, your caregiver or family member who doesn't really know how to be a therapist, but help them be a little bit more hands-on as well. So these are a couple different embodiments we, we envision. Um, so yeah, really fascinating, and uh, certainly um, it, it does require. It looks like enough setup and everything at this time that uh, certainly uh, further revision within that inpatient environment before actually graduating to the outpatient world uh, certainly makes sense. Although I mean, I guess nobody's stopping you from going and proving proof, proof of concept. Go ahead right. and try it uh, out, uh, outpatient in the home as well, and something that in home based therapists could could work with as well and set people up to then, you know, do this multiple times while on the way and I'll come back and check in on you and things like that. Exactly. So um many different possibilities and also all, you know, not just occupational therapy, but could uh you know there's speech therapy applications, physical therapy applications. We do see in the in the physical therapy world has been a bit more aggressive with different types of home exercise type programs um online and everything and therapists being able to record videos for their patients to be able to then do, you know, uh, repeat these exercises later and, and things like that. Um, but uh, certainly occupational therapy with regards to something as complicated as some type of tabletop task set up and food and everything. I've not heard about that being done any, anywhere else. That's entirely novel. And then a lot of these same tools could then be uh, enter into those other therapy spaces as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like you, like you alluded to, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of work that's kind of shifting towards that sort of um, remote health, right? And it's patients, mm-hmm. especially like you mentioned early on with with the pandemic right now. I mean, it's it's 
it's critical to be having conversations remotely with a with your clinician or a therapist or so on and being able to have those tools that help the therapist uh, with the things that are you know a little bit more computationally intensive for them when they, to allow them to focus more on what they're what you know the the their the stuff that a computer can't do and their human input right that uh mm-hmm. you know that's those are those are sort of what we're heading towards right and you made the exact point about physical therapy there's a lot of tools out there and and they're still they're still progressing right but you know i've seen other kind of products where they're tracking someone's pose and position and stuff and they're using a lot of the machine learning and and, uh, artificial intelligence to do so. But like you said, there's the occupational therapy side of it hasn't really been tapped into. So this sort of, um, I I mean, uh, at least I've been visioning it as, as the, the other half to that story. Right. And just completing that full therapy. Right. So. And and you included in your presentation kind of what competition exists in this space as well. And it's important to elaborate for our audience a little bit. I mean, like looking at this visual impact three and hollow lens, um, the pieces of the puzzle that are missing there. So, I mean, certainly um, you can just, you know, visually show people and then, you know, have them uh, uh, do a task. And that's what the visual impact um, uh, kind of ADL task is doing. It gives you step-by-step instructions to do something, but it doesn't have this machine learning of being able to actually assess what you're doing and then uh, judge that. And that, that's really the whole critical piece there. And then the, the HoloLens uh, uh, virtual assistant, I gather um, you're not actually uh, physically doing something. Thing. Um, uh, although I guess it, it does have some, uh, well, we do describe that for us. I understand it's described in a 2018 paper. Like what is the hollow lens? Right. So they're using, they're using virtual reality. So it's interacting with objects in a virtual world, which is, I mean, it's great work they've done, but it, you know, it's the difference here is that patients are actually able to interact with the real world objects, get that tactile input, just boost their, um, their training with, the actual thing that it is that they're going to do, right? Whether it's making a sandwich, doing medication, or, or even brushing your teeth, right? That's something else we've been we've been thinking about. We've again, like I said, we've kind of been focusing first on the tabletop um, exercises because it's a little bit simpler from a design standpoint. But certainly envision getting to a point where maybe maybe even the patient wears, you know, glasses as smart glasses are are, and that's kind of where we started actually, and and we decided we want to start a little bit simpler and, and grow to that, but um, as smart glasses technology is, uh, is, you know, getting like Apple starting to invest in this, so on, right. Um, we certainly see a future where you could use that technology to see from the individual's perspective, how they're doing. And then this almost could be an assistive device as well. Right. So they're going around their house. They, they need all those step-by-step things like, uh, putting something in a microwave, right. And having the assistance, and then they get the practice doing it as well. So that is a future that that we envision as well. Um, yeah, yeah. One uh, can imagine uh, with uh, uh, yeah smart glasses like that being able to load into smart glasses what a particular patient's deficits or impairments are. They tend to ignore as basic as the left side or something like that, and so these glasses need to help them look out for that left side and give them a little more feedback and and those types of things that. Um, uh, could really be a fascinating uh, line of work there. So, um, yeah, there's so much uh, technology out there that that already exists that uh, needs to be translated in a practical way to uh, to practical problems that, that we face in, in neurorehabilitation. That that work uh, seems uh, very fruitful. Um, 
And uh, well, tell us uh, a little bit about some of the other lines of, uh, of work related to neuro rehab that, that you're involved in at Battelle. Right. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, we have a whole uh, neuro program at Battelle and we're sort of based within our med device group. So Battelle does all kinds of work, right? Um, we, you know, we do a lot of government contracts, um, military, military work, you know, just health, general health work. We had a lot of involvement with the the pandemic recently with the coronavirus, but at least where where I sit is uh, in the neuro group, which is sort of, like I said, a subsection of the medical devices group. And we are exploring all kinds of technology to help with all kinds of neurological impairments, right? So we sort of started off with, and we're still still actively pursuing brain-computer interfaces for spinal cord injuries. Um, So a lot of our, a lot of our neuro work is, is, is kind of founded there, right? So working with spinal cord injury patients, implanting microelectrode arrays in the motor cortex and using that to drive electrical stimulation in the forearm. So we've developed a, a full forearm, high definition electric functional electrical sleeve that we can, we can stimulate de- like very fine dexterity and get complex movements and essentially reanimate the, um, the, the motor abilities of individuals who are have, have you know, physical limitations, and and we have recently been trying to take that kind of fundamental technology and bring it into the stroke world, right? So for stroke rehabilitation, so there's you know there's a lot of work with functional electrical stimulation in rehabilitating individuals who have suffered a stroke, and but there doesn't really exist this kind of technology with a high definition array. Uh, a sleeve where you can you can really target in on specific muscles non-invasively right non-invasively and and be able to get very fine motor control and reanimate limbs in a very dexterous way and the other pieces that we've been exploring too is trying to understand an individual's physiology so recording from the muscle activity with with that same sort of technology the high definition array and recording muscle activity and using that to sort of quantify someone's impairment, right? So we've got a lot of work going on there. Again, heavily focused in the in the stroke world on on that. Um, but but yeah, the, and then you know we have a couple other similar technologies that kind of leverage the machine learning and artificial intelligence um, aspects that we bring to each of those projects. And we have work in with cardiovascular system and using vagus nerve stimulation in sort of a closed loop manner to affect an individual's heart rhythm and, and state, right? And detect when there's an imbalance and correct for it. We have, we're doing work with, with DARPA where we have a, a minimally invasive brain computer interface where we have uh, using magnetoelectric nanoparticles to both stimulate and record. So you know, a little bit of everything. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But that, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Quite, quite an array of things to get in, involved in. It uh, uh, must be challenging to, to just, uh, must be challenging for someone like you to decide which of these projects you can't, can't do them all. Uh, you know, so yeah. what all, what all you're going to do on a given day, that's something else. Um, very cool. Well, um, 
Uh, so the, like I mentioned at the beginning, this this project was the winner of the uh, the launch pad in, uh, in 2020. We certainly look forward to seeing how it comes to fruition over uh, uh, coming time. You're already starting to, uh, to work with it more so in the inpatient uh, TBI program there at OSU. Um, can you tell us, give us a little bit of uh, insight into perhaps what you have planned, kind of what you're thinking about direction-wise over the course of the next year or two? Right. So you know, right now we're still very much in the engineering development phase where we're, we have the sort of proof of concept enough to demonstrate the technology. And now it's a matter of taking it to the clinic, right? And we have over the summer planned to do, uh, to test with probably around 10 participants, a couple hour sessions here and there where they come in and just try out the system. Cause we, we really need to understand you know, what are, what are the limitations of the, uh, on the engineering side, right? What are those little things that we haven't accounted for? How is an individual going to interact with this, with the system? And so far we've tested with one participant and we learned a lot that the participant had visual neglect and we found that we needed to prompt them that objects were off to their left when they, they couldn't see them. And there's all those kind of little design changes that need to be implemented. So right now we're very much in that kind of feasibility phase, proof of concept, trying to get, tweak the engineering uh, aspects and at the same time be thinking about the usability and how the system will end up being used or how the end user will, will use the system. And all at the same time, you know, like I mentioned, because we have all of these sort of uh, different projects, sometimes you get a little bit of pull from one project and you kind of have um, within, you know, within projects sort of competition with, with time and resources. And, and as I mentioned, you know, we have a big thrust moving towards the stroke rehabilitation space. So, I do think we'll we'll probably apply this technology there because, like you mentioned, you know, right with the sleeve technology, we're very much focused on the motor, um, the motor re- or you know uh, rehabilitation aspects, but we're not so much focused on the cognitive side, which often comes along with with many strokes, right? So I think we'll probably eventually introduce it into into that world, and it may. Uh, may change our design a little bit of the system, but hopefully for the better, right? Like I said, we, you know, we're, we're really focused right now on trying to get that market feedback and understand those unmet needs and reach out to as many clinicians as we can to to really understand what their needs are so we can build our technology around that and not just be pushing tech. So, Fantastic. Well, I hope this podcast helps then in terms of that reach out. Uh, everyone can uh, reach out to, to Sam at, uh, at Battelle and uh, you can find his information on the ACRM uh, website under uh, Launchpad as the winner of that that competition. And um, uh, uh, you may get a new a few new uh, collaborators uh, interested out of this, Sam. I hope so. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully, hopefully. Well, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Moving on now, next up is a highlight from the November 2020 issue of the Archives. Okay, and joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Lance Trexler. Lance is Executive Director of Brain Injury Rehabilitation Research and Program Development at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana. Uh, he also teaches in the Department of PM&R at Indiana University School of Medicine, uh, as well as uh, Speech and Hearing Sciences at Indiana University, and uh, he is in the Psychological Sciences Department at Purdue. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Trexler. Thank you for inviting me, Dr. Vox. 
Well, uh, so the paper today is what's called a special communication uh, in the archives of uh, PM&R. These special communications are generally uh, invited commentaries from experts such as yourself and, and your colleagues. And uh, in this case, it's one that is certainly an, on a topic certainly big in the national news in terms of the opioid crisis and has huge implications actually and perhaps unseen and understood to some extent the degree to which it involves the traumatic brain injury community. Um, certainly, uh, this is a, a struggle that clinicians deal with uh, regularly, uh, uh, dosing appropriate uh, pain medications in these populations. It's also one in which your communication paper lays out that perhaps the, the rest of the medical world, uh, in particular uh, substance use disorder programs, need to be more aware of, too. Uh, now, before I say too much more about why you might have written the paper, perhaps you can tell me uh, why, uh, why you and your colleagues, which include uh, Dr. John Corrigan, uh, Dr. Trishank Davi, and Flora Hammond, uh, uh, Dr. Hammond joined together to write this paper. Yeah, thanks, um, Dr. Vox. The, you know, I think what really uh, uh, fostered uh, a decision to try and get something out uh, quickly is, is when we were doing a, working on a paper, uh, a study that, that found that if you had a traumatic brain injury, you were about 11 times more likely mm to die of an opioid overdose. And I think that, that many, many prescribers um, don't know that they're prescribing to someone with a TBI uh, and, that, and may have the kind of cognitive and, and neurobehavioral uh, characteristics that they do um, and how that might affect uh, their compliance uh, or not with the medications. Was this a TBI model system study that you're referring to? Yes. Okay. Uh, and and that's a, a important type of uh, surveillance information that can pick out a number of, of trends of which folks might otherwise not be aware of or be aware of generally, but not understand the magnitude of the link there. I mean, 11 times uh, more risk, that's pretty extraordinary. That's what we thought, um, and and uh, we were looking at a variety of medications and and just also the number of people in inpatient rehabilitation um, uh, for traumatic brain injury. You know, about um, a 72, 70 percent, sixty five percent of people with traumatic brain injury um, uh, in inpatient rehabilitation are going to be on at least one opioid. And as you point out, there's a lot of just um, carry, somewhat thoughtless carryover, whatever the inpatient medication regimen or treatment regimen was for a patient, perhaps months or years following, unfortunately, this patient population. Absolutely. And so what we've got then is a mental, you know, we've got a pain clinic or, or a physician prescribing um, uh, or sustaining that opioid uh, prescription, not knowing the risk factors associated with with the traumatic brain, their history of a traumatic brain, especially the mental health, you know, and the and the uh, substance abuse providers may not be aware of that history and and the implications for their prescriptions. Uh, and of course, folks in the TBI community, I think, generally understand that sometimes TBI is almost part of a disease process in and of itself. I mean, we classically think of stroke that, that way, I mean, certain risk factors that are associated with it, whether high blood pressure and cholesterol and so forth. Well, there are certainly risk factors that could potentially lead to some forms of traumatic brain injury. And as you point out, one of those could be substance abuse. Absolutely. I think the work of Dr. Corrigan and his teams and colleagues have, have demonstrated that 
that substance abuse is a risk factor for TBI, but then there's also a, 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 a bi-directional kind of relationship because childhood TBI is a risk factor for, and adolescent TBI is a risk factor for substance abuse. So I think in, 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 in when we get someone in for an index TBI or, the, or their most recent TBI, we often forget to look at that as a potentially neurodevelopmental sort of problem starting with earlier TBI leading to substance abuse, leading to another TBI. Now, uh, as you point out, uh, there are really kind of uh, two chief locations of care when it comes to these modern severe traumatic brain injuries. There's the early acute trauma and rehabilitation phase, your inpatient phase, and then your whole outpatient world and, the, and that struggle as well. And that's where lots of other medical providers start to get potentially involved as well, various pain doctors and it's really substance uh, use disorder clinics and so forth as well. Uh, patients may not be carrying forward their history of a prior traumatic brain injury in the first place, or those providers may not fully understand the implications of it. Let's talk, though, about that inpatient phase over which uh, I imagine a few a number of the folks listening to this podcast uh, are involved in as well and where we perhaps have the most control and ability to perhaps set things on the right foot uh, going forward for what can, in some of these cases, certainly be a chronic condition. You point out that uh, there is a high prevalence of opioid prescription uh, in the first place. Uh, At the same time, um, perhaps our uh, treatment desires for this patient population conflicts to some extent with what we're being asked to do uh, with hospital culture and treating pain as a vital sign and so forth. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and we made some recommendations for this phase in our uh, paper uh, in archives. Um, you know, I think the, the first issue is starting with as, as um, a small a dose as possible and, and a shortest possible dose uh, prescription because, you know, you can... You, even seven to 10 days can be risky on an opioid uh, in terms of promoting dependence. So, so I think uh, uh, what we recommend in this acute phase or in the, in the post-acute phase in the inpatient rehabilitation is try and get a, a multidisciplinary plan in place to manage pain as quickly as possible and, and, and get your physical therapist and occupational therapist, psychologist addressing this um, in context of a plan to discontinue the opioid, if possible, by the time they leave the hospital. Um, so, so that would be uh, starting with admission. Is this patient on an opioid? And first team conference, what are we going to do to get them off? Um, and, and what's our plan as a team to do so? Um, including family education, um, inpatient education on the risks associated uh, with them and, 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 and get their buy-in. Yeah, so really elevating that on the list of problems that folks are addressing on a weekly basis in those team conferences as well and really thinking about what everyone can do to potentially contribute to get this dose lower and this usage lower. Absolutely. Uh, and you point out the importance of obviously diagnosing the source of pain as well, whether it's truly you know nociceptive, you know, or, or orthopedic in, in nature, or right. neuropathic, and and really exploiting the full range of medications that that are available that are non-opioid uh, to treat pain. Right. Yeah. I mean, as you well know, you know, uh, opioids aren't the treatment of choice for uh, neuropathic pain, and uh, so let's not start them um, on, on when it's not the first indication. 
Um, uh, I'm, I'm certainly a, a big fan of uh, uh, broader neuropathic pain medication treatment, as hopefully a lot of my inpatient uh, uh, neurorehabilitation colleagues are. Um, over time, I've certainly reduced my uh, usage of, of opioid pain medications and feel like I've noticed a significant uh, improvement in my patient's cognition and overall alertness as I've done that uh, as well. And I would, I would highly encourage others to experience that firsthand for themselves if they've not done so yet. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's, I think it's clear that, that these medications can sustain delirium, post-traumatic delirium or confusion, um, and can sustain cognitive impairment in the chronic phase. And as you point out, um, there is a lack of uh, understanding, unfortunately, to some extent in the broader medical community with kind of this silent epidemic of brain injury and to the extent to which people can be cognitively and behaviorally uh, involved without necessarily looking like they're bouncing off the walls, but but still be highly sensitive um, to uh, maladaptive uh, behaviors when it comes to substance use because of the nature of the brain injury. As, as a neuropsychologist, speak to us about that. Well, I think, you know, we don't think about the accommodating the effects of the traumatic brain injury when we're writing a prescription. So, so a person may have knowledge um, of the fact that they shouldn't overuse their medication, but but we know that in TBI there can be a dissociation between what you know and what you do, um, and and so that's one issue where people with a, a TBI obviously forget, um, uh, and sometimes they forget they've taken their medication and they take it again, um, and so we need accommodations in place and family education. Uh, and, and we really recommend that families be part of that um, a management of the opioid and the discontinuance plan and, and help with accommodations because of the effects of the TBI. You know, going back to that uh, inpatient care phase, perhaps outpatient a bit too, uh, there's always a, a search for meaningful quality metrics uh, in, in rehabilitation care. And uh, it's always disappointing when you see you know, Medicare picks something like, well, how much of your staff is uh, is immunized by the flu or something, although right. perhaps it's, that's getting more important than COVID and so forth. But right. um, uh, it occurs to me, um, would, you know, kind of the overall uh, MME usage on a rehabilitation unit be potentially a useful proxy of the measure to which that rehab team and facility are putting resources to this problem of pain management versus putting a Band-Aid on? I think that's a great idea. And, and I think that you know, as we look forward here, we we really have to have. Um, I want to kind of reemphasize starting off with the, with even before admission, an awareness that this patient's on an opioid or and sometimes multiple. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, in a recent pull of data, uh, a large data set, we found that that um, of, of people with traumatic brain injury, 20% of them were prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines. Um, and so now we've got <laughs> even another layer of the problem on top of this. And I just, I think it's important to, when that patient hits the door of the inpatient rehabilitation facility, start that plan, that discontinuance plan at that time. 
and and to to carry that forward outpatient uh, uh, as well most most certainly. Um, so uh, uh, you know in uh, in your paper uh, uh, your team uh, breaks apart kind of the acute and the chronic phase and obviously some of these same principles lowest dose possible little as possible use the correct medication if necessary non opioid if if possible right. um, and then uh, add in a few more things in that chronic phase including more of an emphasis on that pain contract and urine drug screen testing and uh, and so forth. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the chief problems is that is perhaps uh, as you're outlining here the recognition that folks with that TBI history need more in the way of extra services going along with this, more in the way of the psychological support services. There needs to be more attention towards bringing that family in as well for that uh, second uh, viewpoint than as the patient's own insight could certainly be limited. Well, and I think too, I think of course when the person has a traumatic brain injury, they're even now more vulnerable to potential sources of influence. So if you got family that's using, if you got family, friends that are using substances illegally, uh, that person with TBI is going to be even now more vulnerable. And so I think um, involved, being aware of who you're discharging this patient to, not only in context of their own history of substance abuse, but but, but what, what's the family situation? What is the friend situation? And how does that increase risk for uh, accidental poisoning or overdose uh, from, uh, from opioids? Uh, at the same at the same time as it's important to be wary with uh, prescription in this patient population too, uh, we don't want to limit access to quality pain care. I know that there's there's been a huge conversation in the medical community about the CDC opioid guidelines perhaps being more aggressively interpreted than they should be for so so-called quote unquote legitimate pain patients who right. may have that ongoing need. Right. Uh, there's some sensitivity in discussing your paper the extent to which a person with TBI might do some things that might seem to violate a pain contract or be somewhat disruptive right. in a group therapy session or so forth that they need some degree of forgiveness for. Right. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, and, I, and, and clearly there are patients that need chronic opioid therapy. And so, so you know, and, and if that's the case, then that's the case. But if that individual has a traumatic brain injury, we need some extra vigilance and we need some uh, uh, family involvement, we need close monitoring, um, uh, and we need to know what the risk factors are. Uh, I think just knowing how cognitively and neurobehaviorally impaired is really important in how you set up the plan to manage these drugs long-term. Um, and so, so um, uh, and, and history of substance use disorder, um, and as I said, the environment in which they're being discharged. Yeah. So definitely broadening that layer of thinking. For, so bottom line, it's incumbent upon the person who is managing uh, chronically uh, a person on opioids with a history of traumatic brain injury who may have some degree uh, of neurological, ongoing cognitive, behavioral, psychological effect from that. You've got to track that in some form or fashion just as much as you track that UDS. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I think it'd be nice if in our discharge summaries, we gave our primary care docs a heads up. And, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, let's, let's insert something in there that says, by the way, you know, this, because of the traumatic brain injury, these are the risk factors for, and, and mm 
Mm-hmm. Let's give them some education about that on a case-by-case basis. Uh, another practical suggestion you guys make is, is of course, upping that surveillance game in the first place. Uh, so, you know, looking at the, the huge industry of substance use disorder right. uh, clinics and programs and so forth, really need to uh, make sure that they're, that they're thoroughly screening for, and obviously then we hope have a different track for patients with a significant head injury history. But you mentioned, uh, in particular, uh, uh, endorsing the Ohio State University identification method. Right. Yeah, we feel like that's probably the most uh, rigorous uh, uh, screening instrument with, uh, with the best data. And, and what's really good about that instrument is that it time dates injuries. Because as we've discussed, many of these people have multiple injuries and, and getting a sense developmentally for the presence of lifetime exposure to TBI gives you a lot of information about the evolution of that opioid use disorder or potential opi- or potential for opioid use disorder um, and, 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 and accidental overdose. Fantastic. Obviously, uh, one paper can't can't do the the entire job. This has to be a hopefully a reminder to the um, rehabilitation community of the importance of this. And everyone um, who is involved in, in rehabilitation has a part to play, even if you're not that ongoing chronic pain prescriber. In terms of helping educate the rest of the medical community, uh, doing precisely what you say as far as that inpatient team when. Everyone's hopefully on their A game, thinking about as many years in advance for this person as they can to put that plan in place so PCPs can see that going forward, future pain treaters can see that going forward. But certainly as we're doing our ongoing follow-ups and treatment of these patients, we too uh, need to remain in communication uh, with folks who, who are managing chronic pain uh, in these patients. So there's there's a lot for us to, to do as kind of team players, kind of the rehab component for the rest of the medical system, understanding that folks with TBI are going to go on and be treated by a variety of medical providers over the uh, over their lives coming forward. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to mention, too, as part of our CDC funding on this project and, and through Indiana State Department of Health, um, we developed uh, or we produced a, a series of webinars specific to this topic uh, and, and that they offer free CMEs as well uh, with it. Uh, oh, great. And, and uh, uh, if, if someone just does a, a Google search for opioids and TBI, uh, an unrecognized relationship, they ought to be able to find this webinar. Um, and and uh, Dr. Hammond did the first one that's what is a TBI. Uh, uh, Dr. Corrigan did how to screen for TBI. Um, I did the talk on increased risk for opioid misuse, um, and then we, uh, Dr. Dave reviewed our prescribing recommendations, and then uh, and Wendy Waldman, someone at RHI, did the talk on where to find brain injury resources and supports. Well, Dr. Trexler, I really appreciate your time with us today going over this important special communication in the November archives of PM&R. Um, opioids and, uh, and TBI, uh, uh, big national story, huge rehab component, uh, a lot for us to do here as rehab providers. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vox. Good to have this chat with you. Yes, sir. And that does it for this February 2021 edition of RehabCast. This year's conference is September 26th through 29th. It will take place virtually, of course, but pandemic willing, and if safe to do so, we will have an in-person component in Dallas. If you enjoyed this episode, please click on your podcast share button and send it to some of your colleagues.